Generative AI can do a lot of useful things. It can summarize text, spark inspiration, and analyze patterns and data. But it can also make things up, including the existence of entire articles from The Guardian. It's an issue our guest this episode, Chris Moran, The Guardian's head of editorial innovation, knows all too well. Earlier this year, he was made aware of an article that didn't actually exist, though ChatGPT swore otherwise. Here, he talks us through how The Guardian is thinking about AI and the many unseen and egregious implications it will have on the future of journalism. I'm Chris Stokel-Walker, and for human rights organization Article 19, this is Tectonic. Chris Moran, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Part of The Guardian, one of the the most trusted, biggest news brands in the world. And and trust, I guess, in media is a a really important thing. And I wanted to just ask you to start off with, I imagine The Guardian has a lot of impersonators, a lot of things trying to pass off as official elements of The Guardian and not being able to. So when was the first time that you came across a, a fake Guardian article? So it was three months ago, and it came to me in an interesting way. I was uh, and continue to help lead on generative AI at The Guardian. We've got a working group full of very, very clever people, many of them much cleverer than me, but I'm kind of leading it on the editorial side. And it first came to me through our central production group, and they had been referred it by our reader's editor. And broadly speaking, what had happened was A researcher was doing some research into slaps and injunctions. Mm. They had done some research uh, to try and find out what we had written about a particular company. They had got their hands on a set of headlines and bylines. And when they tried to go to those links, or one of those links in particular, they found that it was not hosted on The Guardian's website. Wow. And uh, their contact with us was pretty straightforward. They said, we are interested in this kind of stuff with this kind of company. We have found this piece and it's not there. Is this a piece that was subject to some kind of injunction or legal action? And uh, one of the most interesting things about this story is when it got to the writer of the piece, their response was, well, this absolutely could have been something I wrote. I can't remember writing it specifically, but yeah, absolutely. That sounds like me. But when the reader's editor and central production went through all of our back end, there was absolutely no trace of it. And obviously, like any good responsible journalism organization, we keep track of deletions and anything else, nothing at all. And that was at the point when we asked them how they had come across these links. And how had they? Uh, they had asked ChatGPT. GPT-4 takes what you prompt it with and just runs with it. It's a system that can make dreams, thoughts, ideas flourish in text in front of you. And like a good generative AI machine, it had furnished them with a list of things which looked pretty much like what they were looking for. So this was a response that ChatGPT put out. And for listeners who maybe haven't used it necessarily, you type in to ChatGPT a query, maybe show me a set of links or stories about a given subject, in this case, I guess, that company. And it spits out stuff. I've done that before. I've tried to use it as a research tool to see whether or not it can sift through academic literature every single week to give me ideas for stories to pitch to new scientists or whatever. And 
I found that it came up with these really convincing titles. And then when I asked it to give me a link, it said, well, I can't do that. And then I go, well, okay, I'll go to Google and try and find it. So is that what happened then? It was, it wasn't that this story existed on a different website. It's that just the reference to this existed. Yeah, exactly that. It, it simply never existed. Uh, the writer had never written it, but the writer cited absolutely had written pieces in this area about that company, uh, that looked of a piece. Uh, and of course, that's one of the things it's great at, right? You know, when you come across examples of generative AI, you know, across Twitter in particular, it's no accident that lots of it is, I don't know, Wes Anderson style bot <laughs> yeah. styles, you know? That is not an accident. It's really good at it, at masquerading or, you know, cosplaying. And that's what it was doing. Mm. It's built into the way the technology works. It is essentially guessing the next logical word in a sentence. So yeah. how did that experience change your opinion of generative AI? That's really interesting. I think, I think by that point, I undoubtedly was feeling more cautious about it anyway, to be honest. So my, my experience of it was when it was released and the Guardian has used AI and data science and machine learning in very good ways and very consistent ways. We've got fantastic people working in that area. But when ChatGPT came out, the thing that struck me as significantly different was uh, it took these kinds of technologies out of the hands of people who were responsible and expert and into anybody's hands, right? So I started playing around with it and it did become, you know, it becomes pretty clear to anybody pretty quickly that the big danger in a journalistic setting is it can make stuff up. But I think what changed at this point for me was just this sense of, oh God, it, it can create an entirely alternative universe that is linked through to its ability to cite things as well. And so you're talking about kind of not just making up a paragraph of nonsense, but constructing a weave of stuff which feels unbelievably believable. And that feels eerily like, at the risk of us all sounding like boys who cried wolf, we've always worried about the rise of fake news, or, or, or certainly in your tenure at The Guardian, particularly the last 10 or so years, the news agenda has been dominated by disinformation, fake news, yeah. alternative facts. Is this actually that writ large? Were we kind of downplaying the risk back then because we didn't have this alternative universe? It's, it's really interesting because I, th I think some of the most interesting stuff we've done at The Guardian has sometimes been around this exact kind of area, right? But I mean, previously it was about social media platforms not worrying about it and virality and everything else. And um, certainly one of the coolest things we've ever done is burning the date of news content onto our social media mm. images, right? Which was a way of stopping people from using old content and tricking people elsewhere into thinking it was new content, which is a way of kind of weaponizing good journalism. And what I was so proud of in that instance was we were hacking their own systems in a way that only journalists would think, you know, responsibly about. Mm. And I do think that what's interesting about this period right now is too often it's portrayed as almost like a natural disaster, right? It's something that is just going to happen. The technology is here and therefore all of these things will happen. But I think increasingly the thing that I'm banging on about and is a typical thing in all of the best journalism about AI right now. There is a bunch of human beings making very specific decisions about where this technology is integrated. It is not an inevitability and its application is not inevitable either. And 
too often many of the big decisions that are being made right now, I think, are being driven by corporate kind of agendas, as in we have to compete in this area. We have to show that we can do this. Um, I think one of the things that really, really took me aback was OpenAI had this red team, right, who test mm. their own systems, and they released what was called a system card for GPT-4. And in that system card, one of the clients is the profusion of false information from LLMs, either because of intentional disinformation, societal biases, or hallucinations, has the potential to cast doubt on the whole information environment, threatening our ability to distinguish fact from fiction. You know, that is them saying it. Yeah. And they are still making the decision to move ahead. And Google elsewhere are currently beta testing this in search in an environment where people are going to use it to look for facts and it may not work. So that was a very long-winded response to an excellently concise question. But broadly speaking, I guess my position is, yes, I believe this technology does have the potential to make all of this situation significantly worse if we're not responsible about how we deal with it. And do you think that people will be responsible in how they deal with it? So far, I don't think they are being. And, and here, I'm not really talking about the public, actually. Mm. I am talking about the people working at these organisations. I can't believe that many of the people at Google aren't up in arms about the idea of search becoming something which is a matter of opinion or, you know, or, or doesn't have some kind of basis to it that is true or foundation. But it's the pursuit of profit, I suppose. So we need, as you said, to stand up and do stuff about it. But it's not an inevitability. People are. I'd love to get on in a second to what you're doing at The Guardian in terms of um, your policies around this. But I guess it comes from a bottom-up and a top-down approach. So is there something governments, regulators, people who can compel these companies to do something should be doing? I think those are the kinds of questions that most responsible news organisations are asking themselves, right? It's, it's, a re it's been a really interesting movement from October in that most people started from a position of going, uh, oh, this is pretty exciting, and it is. That's the other thing. If I, I, I sound like I, I think it's the worst thing in the world, it's partly dangerous because it is so intoxicating and has such exciting potential. But I think, you know, most news organizations move from that into, oh, BuzzFeed are doing it. They're using it. And it's going to save their share price, right? BuzzFeed announcing that it will increase the use of ChatGPT to create listicles and content. After cutting 12% of its workforce, the stock is up a staggering 146%. BuzzFeed has published an article that features AI-generated images of Barbies that are supposed to represent like what Barbie would look like in every country in the world. And if you thought, oh dear God, what's gonna happen? Here's South Sudan. They decided that that Barbie would be wielding some sort of assault rifle. So, so then you've got this kind of, oh God, what's our thing, our Gen AI thing? But I think a bunch of us have all moved in really sensible ways. And I, I, I think there's a lot of people who deserve a lot of credit. And I think most responsible news organizations have moved more into a kind of, this is very big. There are many implications. We have to think about multiple things here from IPR to you know the kind of legislation you're talking about, 
to? What's our public policy? What should our position be? None of this is simple. And I'm not saying that we have answers to all of it, but I do think that the bigger, and well, not necessarily just the bigger news organizations, I think a lot of the media are responding very well to it by giving themselves the time to think about it and building working groups to actually give it the attention it requires. Mm, which is often quite brave on a, such a fast-moving technology, as you mentioned. We're less than a year into the generative AI revolution. So back around about the time when you first encountered that fake story, June-ish, three months ago or so, the Guardian also came out with guidance on how to use generative AI in journalism. I know it's kind of a long document, but pretty broadly, what's the approach there? Um, well, I mean, actually, it's pretty short in the end. Uh, it was definitely longer. Mm. Um, there were a few things that mattered to us. First of all, we didn't want to be so specific that it became irrelevant within months. And we wanted it to be concise enough to be digestible and understandable by both our readers and, and the people who work for the organization. But broadly, we boiled it down to three principles. The first is, if we're going to use it in any circumstance, it has to have a provable value for the reader. So it can't just be because we can, you know, which I still think a lot of what I see at the moment falls into that bracket. Oh, you can summarize. Okay. Okay. Um, and the distinction between the good stuff that I've seen and the bad is uh, we can summarize because it will have this particular benefit to probably this group of readers makes it something more valuable, right? So for the benefit of the reader, mm. in support of our staff is the second one. We do value our human staff. We do believe there are things that journalists can do, which computers can't. Um, so we want to deploy this stuff in the right place. And again, that will also have a benefit for the reader because we want to use it where we can free people up from more menial stuff to allow them to use their journalistic instincts in a way that a computer never could. And then finally, with, with respect to others and particularly with an eye on content there, because there is this huge question about IPR training sets and what the value of journalism is if you're building multi-billion dollar products. Mm -hmm. And I want to move on to that intellectual property element of the equation because in September you came out with a separate thing. But before we do that, you know, you mentioned it can benefit the reader, it can benefit the journalists if you want to use it in that way. Are there use cases where you can actually see a potential for this kind of technology being used in journalism? So yes, but cautiously. So the other thing that we set up pretty quickly was a, a very small R&D group mm. with an explicit R&D focus, not build us a cool thing, but learn about it, apply it to a few things and come back. Um, I think the biggest and most interesting thing about this technology is it has the greatest amount of value if you do not care about the quality of journalism or you are actively seeking to mislead people, right? If you are in those two camps, you can automate the hell out of it, create huge tranches of content and scale up an efficiency really well. But if you do have a commitment to quality and accuracy, there is no question that you have to have a human in the loop in all of this stuff within a journalistic organization. And the interesting thing about that, of course, means the efficiency is not there in the same way. Uh, it may come, right, if they manage to reduce hallucinations to an acceptable amount, whatever that may be. But fundamentally, if, if everything you're doing with these tools means a human still has to double check it, you might argue that it's not going to be transformative in quite the same way. Mm. So 
there's that. But there are undoubtedly wonderful things it can do. Uh, some of those are really boring, and some of those might not be Gen AI per se. I think the single best application of this kind of technology for journalistic organization remains transcription. I mean, what a wonderful gift to give to a journalist time that otherwise, you know, they really do not need to spend doing something like that. But there aren't necessarily that many really clear cut examples like that. Um, I do think summarization is a good starting point for most news organizations, mainly because to a certain extent it mitigates the IPR side. Mm. We are going to take our journalism and do something to it. And of course, because you hope and broadly can trust that it's going to reduce the amount of hallucination as a result. And there are lots of different applications of summarization, right? It doesn't just have to be what are the five most interesting things in this article. Yeah. You know, we know, for example, that our Apple News audience are going to spend less time with our journalism than our Guardian audience. That probably means they're, you know, we know they're in a serendipitous environment. They probably got a little less time. You can use this technology to maybe tighten up very long pieces or summarize it in a, in a way at the top, which actually encourages them to read the whole thing or shows them quickly what the value of the whole thing is. So can you imagine a, a world where a Guardian story is being sliced and diced for different platforms using AI? Well, I think there are quite a few people who, who see that as the inevitable and ultimate future. I'm not entirely one of those people. I still remain slightly unconvinced that journalism is a series of building blocks that you can take apart like Lego and put back together again. There is an element of truth in that, hmm. but it won't necessarily result in the kind of journalism that will really make a difference in people's lives. It may be, it may be that you can build interesting things to kind of personalize things more or to tighten it up a bit more. But fundamentally, one of the reasons we want a writer to write something is because they hopefully have a voice which matters, right? So I do think there is room in there, but what I don't necessarily believe in is a future in which all of your content is broken up into structured metadata that you can just take apart and put back together and everybody wins. I'm not sure that that is what journalism is at some level. I know a lot of really talented people who disagree with me on that, or would feel more strongly that that is a viable approach. That's the joy. Journalism is an art, not a science. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but I think there are other things that you can do in this area as well, which, which again, lead to journalists being freed up. Our live bloggers work so hard and they're covering stuff often at such a rapid rate. Uh, often we're asking them to write summaries for readers who are joining late. This technology is exceedingly good at doing that instead, right? Again, you still need a human eye on it, but that's a really nice example of what it can do that still brings value to the reader and also brings value to the reader in the extra time that the live blogger has to attend to the actual stuff that's going on. Hmm. Um, and there's one other thing that I'm quite into beyond, I mean, there's a load of other basic stuff, right? Which I don't think we necessarily need to go into. Everyone's talking about headlines and yeah. yada, 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 fine. But um, I really like using it as a kind of proxy for the audience in the writing of an article. So it's one of the things we're playing with is, if you've got, say, a science article, right, where quite a lot of complex themes, concepts, or whatever, having it pop up at the end of that and say, I've just read this and I pretended to be somebody with the reading age of a 12-year-old or whatever, and I found these five things difficult to understand from what you've written. I quite like that approach because there's something about 
it's hard for a journalist, especially if you're writing for a site like The Guardian, where you, you have a massive audience mm. of radically different kind of backgrounds and skills. It can be hard for a writer to actually bear that in mind. And I think it's a really nice, soft way of saying to a writer, just remember the audience is there. They don't have to follow the exact advice. They might look at it and go, well, do you know what? I think I've done a decent job of doing that, actually. But there's something lovely about using it as this kind of remember that there's a group of people. There's also something obviously highly ironic about using a computer <laughs> to remind them that there's a human at the end of the process. So you're embracing AI or, or thinking about it, clutching it closely with some caution on one hand, and then on the other hand, pushing it away. So in September, you came down on the side of blocking the crawlers, which are the the kind of little text consuming robots that go out into the internet and gather data in order to collect for training these AI models. Why did you do that? Um, so just to be clear, all of the work that we've done around uh, general AI remains experimental. So most of what we are doing is playing with these ideas and getting them into the newsroom to people to evaluate whether or not they actually are that useful mm. or not, right? We haven't, at this point, productionized anything. Yeah. Um, in terms of blocking ChatGPT, it's also, to be fair, important to say the only reason we could do that is because they gave us the ability to do that, mm. right? And I think that's, that is reasonable to kind of point out. Why did we do it? Uh, I think because fundamentally we do believe that there is value in what we write all the people who have built these systems. And let's be clear, we can't put the genie back in the bottle. They basically have everything from us up until 2021, right? Through common crawl, although difficult to know exactly how much, but that's another problem. But from this point on, I think it makes absolute sense for us to say, we don't want you to ingest everything for nothing, for your own benefit from this point onwards. And I think the other thing that's really important to point out is the Guardian for years we've operated, we, we were really, really forward thinking about APIs. Mm. And we have had a content API for many years under the open journalism banner. And we hand out keys to individuals who, who uh, give us a good reason for using it. But equally as part of that package, we offer organizations who might want to build a business on our journalism the ability to pay us through that system. And not one of these organizations has done that. Why? You would definitely have to address that to them, but I suspect I know the answer. And that is? I suspect it's because they would say, well, we can't afford to do that for everyone, right? They sell ChatGPT, I suppose, is what, I mean... Again, I, I, I definitely wouldn't speak yeah. for them, but there is a mechanism through which they could have secured the Guardian's archive with absolutely no questions about you know, them being able to use it or not, and they could have remunerated us for it. Mm. I was going to say, we, we both have experience with the tech world, and it's weird that they, they do that and then ask permission later. Sounds like a weird historical precedent. Um, it, it's worth noting that that decision wasn't wholly welcomed by all readers. I, I noticed that you had on the website a series of letters from readers, one of whom said they feel like you shot yourself in the foot by banning ChatGPT from scraping its website. They said... If ChatGPT is denied access to such outlets as The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, and is force-fed a diet of The Daily Mail, The Sun, and The Daily Express, 
it's not hard to predict the outcome. Do you get that? I understand. I, I do understand the point. Again, let's be clear. Uh, these models are have been built on a massive archive of our content, right? So, you know, we're already in there. We also have absolutely no control over what the output of these models is. We we can't even see, right? And and Google won't know how the Guardian is represented, for example, in Bard at a micro level when it's serving responses to millions of people across the course of a given day. And this technology is specifically designed to give everybody a different result. So, so I understand the point, but I do also feel like it's important for us to signal that we are serious, not just about the IPR issues, but also about some of the applications and some of the integrations these things are being built into with almost no consideration about accuracy or the trust that certain organizations have built up, right? So yes, I, I, I do get it, but I also think it was important for us to draw a line in the sand. I mean, we're not closed off to debates about this or to discussions. There might well be a way of them paying us for this or for some other kind of, you know, I, I don't think, I think most news organizations in the world would welcome some kind of conversation about it. Yeah. But those don't, you know, seem to be happening that much. And so what's the next step then if those conversations aren't happening? What do you make of legal action being taken against OpenAI? We've got Sarah Silverman and other authors suing the company for allegedly using their works as training data. They also say the companies are getting unjustly enriched by using this information from their books, also saying that they're negligent and also saying that they're unfairly competing in these industries. Um, we have, in the same way that you started our conversation about fictitious content being created, a, a US radio host suing OpenAI for making stuff up about his biography in a chat GPT response. Yeah. Is this the solution to trying to tame AI? I wish I could give you an excellent single sentence answer to that. <laughs> the simple fact is, I, I don't know. I mean, we are talking about what our options are, what our position should be. We're still talking about this. And, and the other thing is, you know, yourself covering this, everything seems to change every day, right? Mm. Um, I think there are a lot of interesting things happening in this area. I mean, Silverman's suit is really interesting because it looks like her book was ingested via, was it Pirate Bay or something yeah. like that, right? That's interesting in itself. There's an interesting debate about uh, whether or not some of these companies are mistaking being able to go to a website without a paywall for non-copyrighted yeah. content, right, as well, right? Some of it may be about education or making these points. And that there is also another sliver of hope, I think which Adobe Firefly may be an example of, mm. maybe. Um, but that, that was one of the things that really took me by surprise this year. And for listeners, Adobe Firefly is Adobe's response to mid-journey, where they claim that they own everything that it has been trained on, or it is copyright-free, and therefore is a kind of clean training set for an excellent product in this space. There is, I think there are some arguments about whether or not that is true. There are. But what I think is interesting about it as an example is it may be evidence that some big corporations are realizing that they won't be able to sell this kind of tool to corporations without that kind of solid confidence that they're not going to get sued or whatever down the line. And weirdly, 
that might be the way in which these things get ironed out. Don't know. But I think it's an interesting alternative development to just, you know, suing people or regulation, which could take years, right? Yeah. Well, we only need to look at the speed at which regulation of social media and big tech more generally has happened over the last 20 or so years. Um, I don't want to make you sound old, Chris. I really am. You've been at The Guardian for 25 years. You've had 10 or so involved with this kind of editorial innovation purview. How big is this generative AI change compared to all of the others? Because you've you've come through the Twitter revolution. You've come through the pivot to video and Facebook. You've gone through so many kind of tech-enabled shifts in media. Where does this sit? I think it's pretty big, I've got to say. Um, and of course, it's also happening at a weird time when, you know, talking about social media, uh, the kind of final dying days probably of social media sites that are referral platforms. You know, Facebook closing the news tab yesterday it doesn't make a blind bit of difference ultimately, but I think it's kind of the you know, final slamming of that book shut. You've got Twitter or X now looking shaky. Um, Yeah, I think it's really big. And the reason I think it's that big is partly because of Google's response to Microsoft, right? Google are worried enough to build it into search. And search is so big, so big. I also do think, I think some people are quite blasé about this. You know, there's this thing about... um, when people say this this allows, this gives people the technology to create fake news at a micro level, mm. often people are like, well, yeah, but that doesn't matter, right? It's, that's going to be fine. But actually, I think it is going to matter. I think, I think, you know, the easiest thing in the world to create a bit of Donald Trump audio or a picture of him. Uh, and we're hitting a US election cycle. People are already worrying about. So um, I think it's up there. I think it's it's very, very big indeed. And a big part of that will be what happens in the next year, particularly around Google search and what Google do. Is there an element of history repeating itself here? You mentioned Google and Microsoft and with them kind of open AI, do you kink it out? I mean, generative AI's whole pitch is that it's kind of disruptive, but are we just replacing the old tech companies that, as you mentioned, kind of dominated the social media era with two new massive companies that can, as prior precedent shows, pull the rug out of the big megaphone for a free press? I don't know about just the two companies. I mean, Mm. it does feel very familiar in one very particular way, which is nobody on social media platforms were worrying about moderation or its impact on the public sphere when they were building them, right? And you know, there's a slight change here because at this point, platforms or tech companies know they should talk to that. Mm. And we do have things like the system card being released, the red teams and everything else. But I think actually in terms of genuine action or what they are choosing to do, I think we are following the same path of something unbelievably disruptive, interesting, powerful, being unleashed in ways where we're not necessarily thinking enough about the consequences. Mm. 
I'll make this my last one because you've been very generous with your time. You've obviously seen over that span, you know, a journalist's job changing with the rise of the web and social media. You mentioned live bloggers, which is a key part of kind of what The Guardian does. And obviously there's a lot of social media first journalism that happens there. How does the role of a journalist change with AI, do you think? What will our jobs look like in the future? So, optimistically, you would say, you would hope that, yeah, we start cutting away at things which are less important to free you up for things that are more important. And if you think about production work, you might argue these things are quite good at language. A production job might might have less emphasis on the specific language and grammar and more on facts or fact checking, you know, and standards and values. That might not be a bad thing, right? Um, I don't subscribe to the vision that we're going to end up in a situation where a journalist will come into the Guardian for his first day at the job, will sit down in front of the CMS and it will say, please give me all of the feeds you are interested in. And okay, thanks for that. Now I've looked at this and I've looked at your previous work. I think you'd be interested in these four stories. Uh, If you click on one of them, I'll take the liberty of writing it in your style. And then, you know, uh, at the end of that, do you know what I mean? That doesn't feel to me like a a frontier that anybody wants to get to or should want to get to from an editorial point of view. But I do think individual journalists are going to start using these tools in interesting ways to help them write stories. Some of these tools are going to become like Excel, and some of them will be deeply integrated in things like Google Docs to a point where many people will start to want to use them as a kind of co-pilot or whatever. Um, I think we're going to make quite a lot of mistakes, individual mistakes along the way there. Mm. But I do think the writing process may well change uh, and become a bit more symbiotic. That will horrify some people. Uh, and I still think in 10 years' time, there will be some people who would, would not want to touch these tools. But that's okay, right? Ultimately, it becomes about whether or not you feel you can use it as part of your process. Mm. I guess we still have some people who type one finger at a time or, or dictate their copy down yeah. the phone, the, the old guard. Maybe we'll look that way in 10 years' time. Yeah. Chris Moran, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Chris. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to Tectonic, a new podcast from Article 19. We hope you'll join us for future episodes, which we'll release every fortnight, and look at the wide variety of ways that these seismic shifts we're currently seeing in technology can affect our freedom of expression. I'm Chris Stoker-Walker. Your producers this episode were Christopher Hooten and Nicola Kelly, with theme music and original score by Julian Wharton. If you would like to leave us a star rating or review wherever you're listening, that would be hugely appreciated. It really makes a difference to our show. Thank you, and see you next time.